several expansions and additions, however, the institutes became much larger. They became four books with 80 chapters in total. So it's not going to fit in your pocket anymore. Calvin's first edition of the Institutes was a surprise bestseller. It was in Latin, so every educated person in Europe could read it, and all printed copies sold out in nine months. Despite the success, Calvin did not wish to bask in the limelight. Whenever he met new people, Calvin would not mention that he was the Institute's author. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. He preferred to just pursue his own study quietly. Calvin returned to France in 1536, but a new edict from the King of France soon forced Calvin to leave again. But where to go this time? Well, here's where God's mysterious sovereignty becomes very apparent in Calvin's life. Calvin intended to go to Strasbourg, which today is on the eastern border of France across from Germany. But back then, it was a city that was part of the Holy Roman Empire. Strasbourg was a safe haven for Protestants, as the great Martin Bucer had been leading the reform movement there since the 1520s. However, warfare in the area in which Calvin would need to travel to Strasbourg meant that he couldn't go to the city directly. Calvin needed to take the long way, passing through Geneva, a town at Switzerland's extreme southwest end, right on a lake also called Lake Geneva. It just so happens that Geneva had recently be become a Protestant city itself due to missionaries from nearby Bern in Switzerland. But the situation in Geneva was complicated. The city had converted, really, because of two groups. There was a small group that genuinely wanted reform and the purification of the church, while a much larger group, a second group, was mainly composed of middle-class citizens who wanted the economic advantages of breaking away with Rome, or breaking away from Rome. Actually, Geneva was a city well known for its worldliness. So the label Catholic or Protestant really wasn't going to be a big deal for most of the people. It wasn't going to affect their behavior. If being Protestant meant better trade relations and less taxes, then so much the better. We'll become Protestants. That was the attitude in Geneva. But the leader of the missionary group in Geneva was one William Farrell. Now, there's some funny stories about this man, William Farrell. He was a real firecracker. When he would start preaching reform in a Catholic city, sometimes people would physically attack him. But Farrell would hold his own. One time, a Catholic priest tried to tackle Farrell, so Farrell punched the priest in the face. Another time, a Catholic priest shot a pistol at Pharrell while Pharrell was walking away from the priest. The priest missed, and Pharrell turned around and said, your shots don't scare me. Anyways, Pharrell had suddenly become in charge of religious life in Geneva, but he was not a great administrator. He had almost no supporting staff with him, and he was working with a largely apathetic populace. If true reform was going to happen in Geneva, Pharrell really needed help. Well, word reached Pharrell that the writer of the Institutes was in town, despite, I'm sure, Calvin's not wanting that news to spread. You can imagine Pharrell's thinking, perfect, a man with an astute mind who is zealous for reform, I must get him on the team. So Pharrell arranged an interview with Calvin and what an interview it was. Here's Calvin recounting it later, also in his commentary on the Psalms. There's more from Calvin about this instance in his commentary. Quote, Upon learning of my presence in Geneva, Pharrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. After having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wish to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance 
when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. But sensible of my natural bashfulness and timidity, I would not bring myself, up, um, bring myself under obligation to discharge any particular office. Did you see what Pharrell did? He called out a curse on Calvin if Calvin would not help. May God curse all your private steady if you refuse to help when there's such a great need. Now, as Dr. Buzinus points out in his church history series, this is not the best way to hire an assistant pastor or indeed to recruit people into ministry. But it stopped Calvin in his tracks, and Calvin was overcome by the fear of God. Calvin then started working with Pharrell to implement reform in Geneva. But this work was going to be very, very hard. Geneva, and there's a picture of Geneva today. Geneva, like Zurich in Switzerland, was a republic. That, it was, that is, it was led by a city council rather than a duke or a king. And the council had a number of truly reform-minded people on it, and these tasked Pharrell and Calvin with coming up with a statement of faith and a set of recommendations for laws that would promote moral behavior in Geneva. So Calvin and Pharrell complied, and the city council forbid activities like gambling, the singing of immoral songs, dancing was outlawed, dancing was associated with raucous Catholic festivals, kind of like Mardi Gras, and the city also imposed a curfew. Now, the people of Geneva, remember, mostly worldly people, they did not like these new rules, and they took their anger out on Calvin specifically. Let me ask, well, why Calvin? He's not the leader of the movement there. Wasn't he just a helper? Well, even though Calvin initially only agreed to lend aid, not lead reform in Geneva, his abilities and his zeal soon made him stand out, and he became the central reforming figure in the city. It was Calvin, not Pharrell, who was preaching expositions from the New Testament each Sunday. So the re resentment of the people, people who didn't like reform, was most directed at their pastor, John Calvin. People regularly threw rocks at Calvin's home and at his windows. People started naming their dogs Calvin so that they could vicariously vent anger on the preacher whenever they beat or yelled at their dogs. Stupid Calvin, bad dog. It was a very, very difficult situation. Thank the Lord that that's not the situation in our churches today. May God protect us from that kind of situation. This very tense ministry in Geneva continued for three years. But the city council eventually changed. It became made up of not Calvin's supporters, but Calvin's opponents. And these then instructed Calvin and Pharrell to follow their bidding. And one of their directives was to use unleavened bread in communion. Council felt like that would be a good idea. But at this command, the two reformers, Pharrell and Calvin, bristled. The city council should not be telling what the church to do in church. The following Sunday, Calvin and Pharrell refused to serve communion to a certain or to certain people in the church because those people were obviously in sin. They refused to serve those people communion. Now, this would cause an issue. Part of the rules of the town were that everybody goes to church. So if you were denied the Lord's table, that was very humiliating. Not to mention there were probably in the people some holding over Catholic notions on the, the Mass or the Eucharist being necessary for one's spiritual life. How dare you withhold the Eucharist from me? I need that. Protecting the Lord's table from those unworthy caused an uproar. A mob formed, armed with pitchforks and weapons, and they told Calvin and Pharrell that they had two and a half days to leave the city. And this they did. 
Pharrell left and he became a missionary to nearby Neuchâtel, also in Switzerland, where he successfully brought reform there over the preceding years. What about Calvin? Well, Calvin figured that God had released Calvin from ministry in Geneva, and Calvin might as well do as he intended all along, go to Strasbourg. So in 1538, Calvin finally arrived in Strasbourg, as he intended to do all along. But God was not done using Calvin in ministry, and he wasn't done with Calvin either. Martin Bucer was leading the Christians in Strasbourg, and soon after Calvin's arrival, Bucer asked Calvin if Calvin could be the pastor for a group of about 500 French refugees, Protestant refugees who had fled France. Calvin agreed. And so begins one of the happiest periods of Calvin's life. In contrast to the continual torture of ministering in Geneva, here in Strasbourg, Calvin instead ministered to motivated and sincere to a motivated and sincere group of believers who themselves had already suffered for their faiths in France. This doesn't mean Calvin slacked off in his work. Well, at Strasbourg, Calvin preached a sermon every day, and he taught two sermons on Sunday. Also, while at Strasbourg, Calvin published the second edition of the Institutes and his first commentary, the Commentary on Romans. Additionally, in 1540, Calvin got married. Calvin married the widow, Idolette de Bourg, and he took her two kids as his own. Calvin and Idolette had one child together, but the baby was born prematurely and died after a few days. They didn't have any other children. Nonetheless, their marriage was a happy marriage, but it ended tragically too soon. Nine years after they were married, Idolette fell ill and died. Calvin was deeply affected by her death. He wrote to a friend at the time, quote, I have been bereaved of the best friend of my life, of one who, if it had been so ordained, would willingly have shared not only my poverty, but also my death. During her life, she was a faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance." Unquote. Great relationship, Calvin never remarried. But a death is some years later, not in Strasbourg. While in Strasbourg, all was happy. It was the golden years, as Calvin called them. But while serving in Strasbourg, enjoying that ministry there, Calvin experienced a most unexpected event. Geneva invited Calvin to come back. What? How on earth? Why on earth? Well, you see, after Calvin left Geneva, church attendance there declined more and more. Furthermore, political circumstances had changed, and Geneva needed somebody who could stand up against the Catholics who were trying to reassert control over the city. So the Geneva City Council turned to Calvin. Dear Calvin, would you like to come back to Geneva? I like Calvin's initial response. Quote, rather would I submit to death a hundred times than to that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. Unquote. That was only his initial response, though. Calvin felt, ultimately, that the Lord was opening the door for him to go back to continue the work which Calvin had started, which the Lord had initially called Calvin to do in Geneva. So Calvin made a compromise. Strasbourg would loan Calvin for six months to Geneva until Calvin had a better idea of what to do. Kind of like six month loan period, I can get out if things are really bad again. But this turned out to be providential. Once Calvin returned to Geneva in 1541, he would never leave. He remained there the rest of his life. The story is that when Calvin returned to preach in the Geneva church, he did not say a word about how the people there had previously driven him away. He just started preaching right, right where he had left off when they had banished him. Things were not too bad for Calvin initially. 
when he returned. He got permission from the city council to establish a consistory, essentially a governing body for the church made up of pastors and lay elders. This consistory did not have any civil authority. It was only authoritative over the church. Calvin was, again, very vigorous when he returned to Geneva with sermons six or seven times a week. Each sermon was a little over one hour, and Calvin used no notes while preaching. But don't think that Calvin was simply a workaholic. At one point, after he returned to Geneva, he petitioned the council for fewer preaching engagements. It was a little too much. And they said, all right, you can preach one sermon on Sunday instead of two. But that was only temporary. They later brought back the full requirement. So lots of preaching. While in Geneva, Calvin preached 2,000 sermons, and he published several more commentaries. Many of Calvin's sermons actually survive today in his commentaries. That's basically what makes up his commentaries. The Geneva church gained a stenographer in 1549 who helped Calvin publish his sermons as commentaries, which is not unlike what some preachers do today. Now, while ministering in Geneva the second time, Calvin continued to correspond with other Reformation leaders in Europe, people like Martin Bucer in Strasbourg, Philip Melanchthon in Germany, he was uh, Luther's right-hand man and, and a successor in a way. Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, he was the successor to Zwingli. Calvin's corresponding with all of them. So ministry was laborious, but better than the first time in Geneva. Until 1546. Things change again in 1546 when opposition begins to build against Calvin once more. People felt like or some people felt like Calvin's teaching and the moral rules, which he came up with, which the city enforced, were too strict, and they banded together. And so began a long struggle with a group that Calvin, uh, a group to which Calvin gave a special name, the Libertines. Probably like what happens in churches today. When someone teaches on the holy life to which Christians are actually called, when they simply preach what the Bible says is required of a Christian, many react, and they accuse the preacher of legalism. Falsely proclaiming Christian liberty, such persons condemn the pastor, say what he's doing is wrong, when really these people are fighting simply for the right to be worldly Christians. And this is exactly what was happening with the Libertines who began to oppose Calvin. They accused him of legalism when really they were just fighting for the right to be worldly Christians. And the Libertines weren't just common people. Many of them were from the most powerful families in the city, very influential men. So the, the situation slowly began to deteriorate for Calvin. 1546, a citizen publicly criticized Calvin. The city council reacted by supporting its pastor and forcing that citizen to repent of his slander publicly and to ask God for forgiveness. This the person did, but the episode, the entire episode, only inflamed hatred for Calvin even more. Later in 1546, the man who had invited Calvin back to Geneva, Ami Peren, turned on Calvin and he became leader of the Libertines. Further, in 1547, Someone placed a letter on the church pulpit threatening Calvin and the other pastors in Geneva with violence. The city council conducted an investigation. They found the perpetrator who confessed to the crimes, or confessed to that crime and others, and was put to death. But you can see the situation is getting quite tense for Calvin. Lots of opposition. The libertines continued to oppose and insult Calvin even after this instance. And their influence grew. In 1552, Ami Peren, leader of the Libertines, he became a part of the city council. In 1553, Calvin nearly died while protecting the Lord's table. Historian M. Eugene Osterhaven recounts the showdown that took place in his book, The Faith of the Church, a, a reform perspective on its historical development. <clears throat> Listen to what Osterhaven writes. He says, 
The opposition soon made other plans to destroy or discredit the reformer. One of these resulted in a direct confrontation between Calvin and the Council of 200, that is the city council. The issue was the excommunication of Philibert Bertillier, the council secretary, by the consistory of the Church of Geneva in 1551 and his absolution by the state council in 1553. Basically, the church leadership said he's excommunicated, he's unrepentant in sin, but the city council says he does not deserve to be excommunicated. He's a fine fellow. So there's this conflict. The following Sunday in 1553 was communion. Calvin preached in St. Peter's and at the close of the sermon declared that he would never profane the sacrament by giving it to an excommunicated person. Over his head, that's Calvin, on the pulpit, his emblem was set, a heart in flame, a heart in flame, outstretched, I'm sorry, a heart aflame and an outstretched hand offered to God. His famous motto, Calvin's famous motto, was embossed on the dark red velvet pulpit cover, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Raising his voice and lifting up his hands, he exclaimed in the words of St. Chrysostom, quote, I will lay down my life before these hands give the sacred things of God to those who have been branded as his despisers, unquote. A crowd of libertines surged forward to the table. Calvin, descending from the pulpit, stood before the table. With drawn sword, a libertine cried, quote, Administer communion to us, or you will die, unquote. His head thrown back and his arms extended over the sacred elements, Calvin responded that although they might cut off his arms, shed his blood, and take his life, it would never force him to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of his God. The crowd was stunned, and a long silence followed the dramatic moment. Turin, finding the, the city syndics opposed to Calvin, quietly ordered Bertillier not to approach the table. After the crowd withdrew, Beza reports, Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, communion was celebrated, quote, in profound silence and under solemn awe, as if the deity himself had been visibly present among them, unquote. Isn't that awesome? True to his emblem, Calvin was ready to be spent for the glory of God. And the Libertines backed down that day. Nevertheless, Calvin soon felt that the battle for Geneva was lost. He submitted his resignation to the city council in July 1553. However, they would not accept it. As much as the Libertines and the majority of the city council hated Calvin, they knew it would cause an uproar to banish him again. So here's Calvin, again, enduring torment, dying daily, continually persecuted, continually slandered, trying to be faithful to his calling, but feeling like ministry in Geneva is just doomed. Calvin had his supporters, but those who had the political power were his enemies. Enter Michael Servetus. If you've heard that name before, Servetus, you've probably heard it from some anti-Calvinist using Servetus as proof that Calvin was a terrible person and that we should totally discount Calvin's teaching and ministry. If you look up memes having to do with Calvin, It'll talk about how Servetus was murdered by Calvin, as if Calvin himself put the dagger in Servetus. Uh, I hope you'll see in a moment that such thinking or such statements are totally unfounded. They do not line up with the historical record. Ironically, though Servetus is used to discredit Calvin today, it was actually Michael Servetus who provided the vindication for Calvin and his reforming ministry before the people of Geneva at that time. Who was Michael Servetus? Well, he was a Spanish physician who, based on his own personal study of the Bible, was convinced that the Trinity was something the Roman Church under Constantine had simply made up. He did not believe in the Trinity. He believed Christ was only a created being. 
He also opposed infant baptism. So we again see the weird connection between believer's baptism and heresy. Why so many heretics embrace credo-baptism, I don't know. But Servetus, he believed these things, but he was not just a heresy believer, he was a heresy teacher. He wrote and published several works attacking the Trinity. Calvin had some correspondence with Servetus, and Calvin tried to persuade Servetus of the error of his teaching, but Servetus was immovable. He was convinced of his own stance, and he instead only continually attacked Calvin and Calvin's teaching. Eventually, Calvin stopped responding to Servetus's letters, but when Servetus said he wanted to come visit, that is, harass Calvin in Geneva, Calvin warned Servetus that Calvin could not guarantee Servetus' safety. Remember, as we've seen, this is a time period where church and state are intimately connected, both for the Catholic Church and for the new Protestant churches. If you're going to be a notorious heretic, you're going to be executed. That's just what happens. It was very rare for a false teacher not to be killed, and even then he was usually banished on pain of death. While Servetus was in France, he was arrested by the Catholics. He was tried for heresy, and he was condemned to death. But Servetus escaped his imprisonment, and for whatever reason, he came to Geneva. Servetus was soon recognized, though, in Geneva, and was arrested. And considering his history with Calvin, or considering Servetus' history with Calvin, Calvin knew that Servetus' teaching or he knew what his Servetus' teaching was, and he called for the city to recognize and condemn Servetus as a heretic. The city council, however, which did not like Calvin, did not want to follow Calvin's advice. Doing so, they thought, would give Calvin more credibility as one standing up for orthodoxy. They wanted to reject Calvin's advice regarding Servetus as a way to embarrass Calvin but Servetus was too obviously a notorious heretic. You can't deny the Trinity and somehow be orthodox. The city council, therefore, dragged out the heresy trial of Servetus in an effort to annoy Calvin. The council wrote to several prominent cities, prominent Protestant cities throughout Europe, asking the leaders there what they should do with this man Servetus. What do you recommend we do with the heretic Servetus? By asking for advice in this way, if the leaders of other cities called for Servetus' death and condemnation, the council could at least make it look like they were following these other leaders and not Calvin. If the other leaders, however, said that Servetus shouldn't be put to death, shouldn't be condemned, then the council would have a way to more legitimately oppose Calvin. See, they didn't agree with your advice. Well, it turns out that every city said the same thing. Every Protestant city, even some Catholic cities that they consulted, wrote back and said, Servetus is a false teacher. Let him be condemned. Let him be executed. So reluctantly, the council finally decided to do just that. They condemned Servetus, and they sentenced him to be burned at the stake. Now, throughout this prolonged trial, Calvin tried to get Servetus to recant, visiting him in the prison, talking with him, but Servetus refused. Even after the condemnation, Calvin requested a more compassionate form of execution, a beheading instead of a burning. But burning is custom for what you do to heretics, and the council rejected Calvin's request. Servetus then was executed by burning on October 27, 1533. The Servetus trial, much to the chagrin of the libertines, greatly enhanced Calvin's reputation among the people. Calvin seemed to the people of Geneva a proven and zealous defender of Orthodox Christianity. The libertine opposition to Calvin, therefore, began to decline. Between 1554 and 1555, libertine influence got weaker and weaker as French Huguenot refugees, who were supporters of Calvin, were granted full citizenship in Geneva. The city council soon found itself made up of more and more allies of Calvin. And finally, 
the Libertines disgraced themselves. In 1555, a drunken mob of Libertines tried to set fire to a house, but they were caught doing so. Most of these Libertines fled the city, and those that stayed were arrested, tried, and executed. So the opposition to Calvin's ministry finally was totally defeated. Calvin gained the support of the people in Geneva and the support of the city council for the rest of his life. In this last portion of Calvin's ministry, Calvin continued to preach and write, and he became particularly concerned with taking the gospel to other lands, especially Calvin's homeland of France. So Calvin started a primary and secondary school in Geneva with the goal of training children in true doctrine and training ministers to preach the gospel. Calvin's church and the schools he set up in Geneva indeed trained and supported many ministers who took Reformed theology into France, into the Netherlands, and even into England and Scotland. One of these Reformed ministers was a man by the name of John Knox who had fled the persecution of Bloody Mary in England, but later returned to Scotland and would become quite influential in bringing about Reformation there. Calvin became increasingly ill toward the end of his life, but he never stopped working. Actually, when Calvin thought he was going to die in 1559, he worked even harder to finish one last edition of the Institutes. And that is the edition that we have today. Because Calvin didn't die. He was able to finish the Institutes. He actually lived seven more years after that time. Calvin eventually did die, though, on May 27, 1564, at the age of 54. Before we uh, give the final word on Calvin's life, let's briefly detour a moment to consider the theology of Calvin's Institutes. The final version of the Institutes is, at least in PDF version, which you can download for free on the internet, it's 1,200 pages. Pretty massive. Though Calvin did write a shorter summary of the Institutes called Truth for All Time. This shorter summary work is less than 100 pages. So if you want to get familiar with Calvin's theology, you can read the shorter one, unless you have the time for the longer one. But if we look at the Institutes, certain themes stand out. And themes, these themes, as we talk about them, you'll notice they intersect with the Reformation solas that we've mentioned and now that the pastor is even preaching through. What were distinctives of Calvin's theology? Well, first of all, scripture as ultimate authority. This is sola scriptura. The scriptures are the believer's ultimate authority and standard. This doesn't mean, though, that Calvin didn't appreciate church history, or he didn't appreciate the interpretations of uh, fellow preachers. Calvin often quoted the church fathers in his works to show that others interpreted the Bible in the same way that Calvin did. But still, scripture is the authority. Another distinctive, the Trinity. Thirdly, Divine providence and predestination. Ah, this is what we always think of when we think of Calvin. Yeah, election, sovereignty, predestination. But of course, Zwingli and Luther and the other reformers, they affirm this doctrine as well. God is sovereign over all things, including man's salvation. God's will alone is what saves. But Calvin wanted to explain this doctrine in more than just salvation. He really saw it as the comforting bedrock for the whole Christian life. Sovereign grace is not only important for salvation and for evangelism, but it also has to do with sanctification, trials, persecution, etc. Now, some today accuse Calvin of holding to double predestination. That is, that God elects people not only to salvation in heaven, but also to condemnation in hell. God elects them to both places. Now, Calvin did make some statements, does make some statements that sound like double predestination, but it's never explicitly stated in his institutes, and it's likely not what he believed or taught. Double predestination, like hyper-Calvinism, seems to be the logical conclusion of God's sovereignty. If God is in control of everything, then I'm ultimately not responsible for my sin, or even my own disbelief and condemnation of hell. God, after all, wouldn't let me do anything differently. It's not my fault. Well, 
this cannot be because this contradicts scripture. Here's actually a good, a good example of Luther's concept of the theology of the cross. We must stick to what God revealed about himself in his word rather than simply rely on our own ideas about God. Double predestination would negate God's right to judge. The Bible makes clear that man does have a free or culpable will that somehow paradoxically exists with God's full sovereignty. When we sin or when we disbelieve, God is just to judge us, judge us because we choose sin. As James says in, the, in his letter in the Bible, God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. God does not make us do evil, but he allows us to do evil and even to reject him. He allows many to get exactly what they want and choose, which is a life and an eternity without God. But for the elect, God mercifully reveals himself so that those elect cannot help but choose and embrace God. God gives them faith. God makes them alive. And in this way, God gives all the glory to himself. Soli Deo Gloria. If I'm saved, if you're saved, it's God who did it all. If I'm condemned, if you're condemned, it's I and you who did it all. God is just to condemn us if we do not believe. Even though he allows my evil decisions, our evil decisions, as part of his glorious display of wrathful justice. God does not force anyone to sin or to go to hell. So, no, double predestination is is not what we should associate with Calvin. Another misconception about Calvin when it comes to sovereignty and predestination and election is that Calvin came up with and emphasized TULIP, or the five points of Calvinism, as we know them today. Now, even though Calvin did affirm and teach those points as part of the understanding of God's sovereignty, the five points of Calvinism actually came after Calvin. They were really a later response of Calvin's followers to the rise of Arminianism. The Synod of Dort in 1618 to 1619, so about 50 years after Calvin, was a discussion of Arminianism versus Calvinism in the Netherlands. The Arminians were followers of Jacob Arminius, a theologian who lived from 1560 to 1609, who came up with five points attacking Calvinism. And the Calvinists simply responded to these five points with five points of their own. And this is what we know as TULIP. The Synod of Dort ended up condemning Arminianism and exile, exiling the Arminian pastors that were in the Netherlands. But Arminianism survived. It spread in certain places, and it is still embraced by many denominations today. So TULIP was what Calvin taught, but he didn't emphasize those five points. He didn't come up with those. Those were from his followers later in the Netherlands. One last thing to say about predestination. Many today who oppose the teaching of God's sovereignty of salvation do so partly because they think that otherwise Christian missionary zeal will be destroyed. If God is the only one who's responsible for salvation, then why tell anybody about God? Well, it is certainly true that the flesh will often try to use God's sovereignty as an excuse to sin. And one of those sins would be to not tell others about God. But that is the fault of the flesh, not of the truth. Really, when God's sovereignty is correctly understood, that doctrine encourages evangelism rather than discourages it. Because you know that when you talk to people about Christ, your work is not in vain. God will save some of his elect through you and through the church. God will accomplish his purposes. So you know your work is not in vain. By the way, it's telling that the evangelistic and reforming zeal that we see sweeping Europe in the 1500s in the period of Reformation was led primarily, almost totally, by those who believed in God's sovereignty and salvation. Indeed, throughout most of church history, 
many, if not most, of the zealous missionaries in church history were firm believers in God's sovereignty in salvation. So there really is no connection between God's election and loss of missionary zeal. So we know Calvin for his teaching of God's sovereignty and salvation. But what else? A few other distinctives. Calvin taught original sin. We all have inherited a sin uh, and corruption from Adam. He taught justification by faith. It was clear, however, that those who truly are believing will display fruits of faith. That is, they will live holy lives. He denied papal authority. He denounced the use of icons in the church. He taught that the true church was the invisible church, not simply those who identified themselves as Christians. They were the ones who God had actually changed. And Calvin only, only taught two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, Calvin, like the other reformers, held to infant baptism. We've already talked about that a little bit. But he held a unique position when it came to the Lord's table. He held the spiritual presence view. Just to rehearse, the Lutherans, no, let's go back to the Catholics. Catholics believed in transubstantiation. The bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus. Lutherans held to consubstantiation. The bread or the, the elements remain bread and wine, but they also become the literal body and blood of Jesus. Christ is physically present in the elements. Then there was Zwingli's view, and this is the view of the majority of the reformers, the memorial view, which is Christ's physical presence is not there at all. These elements, the bread and the wine, are only symbolic of Jesus, and they help us remember what he did and allow us to identify with Jesus. But then you have Calvin's view, the spiritual presence view. It's kind of like a middle ground between the Lutherans and um, the Zwinglians. Many reformers would say that the Lord's table or the Eucharist is simply a memorial in which you declare your, your, subscri your subscribing to the gospel. These are symbols of gospel truth. And baptism one declares, I have died with Christ and I am confident that I will be raised with him. Or at the Lord's table, you declare, I have wholly taken Christ in. I am sustained by Christ every day as if by food, and I will dine with him in glory. But Calvin said that there was something further. There's something in the symbol itself that nourishes you. I don't know how, he'd say, but I don't believe that God would give us a symbol of nourishment, being sustained by food, without actually spiritually nourishing us in some special way. It can't be that these are just an empty symbol, a symbol of nourishment without actually imparting any nourishment. That was Calvin's thinking. It's a subtle distinction, and one that many of the other reformers didn't think was necessarily wrong. They felt like it was compatible with a memorial view. Okay, sure, I can say I'm being spiritually nourished by Christ during communion, but I'm also being spiritually nourished by Christ outside of communion. So they weren't they weren't upset at all with Calvin's specific stance on the Lord's table. This is why I say that Calvin was actually not that controversial doctrinally compared to maybe other Reformed theologians at the time. <clears throat> he found some common ground with the Lutherans, who said that Christ's physical presence was part of communion, and he found common ground with the Reformed preachers like Zwingli, who saw the Lord's Supper as only a memorial. This is not to say that Calvin was not well-respected or that he was not influential, he was. His institutes were read and championed by many across Europe, and his church and school in Geneva trained and supported many ministers throughout Western Europe. So these are some of the distinctives evident in Calvin's institutes. Calvin also wrote commentaries on most of the Bible. and those commentaries, he held to a literal hermeneutic, except on certain prophetic or apocalyptic passages. For example, Calvin interpreted the promises of a restored, prosperous kingdom of Israel that are made in Amos 9 as symbolic, explaining that God had to use physical language of a coming, prosperous kingdom because the people were not able to understand greater spiritual realities. Calvin, therefore, like most of the other reformers of this period, 
was a non-millennialist. He did not believe there would be a literal kingdom before um, the, the total last events of uh, Revelation. He believed that Christ's kingdom was a spiritual one. There would be no future literal kingdom on earth. And the tribulations of Revelation were only symbolic of various trials the church has gone through or will go through before the second coming of Christ. Now, we love you, Calvin, but we're going to disagree with your interpretation there. We need to have a more consistent hermeneutic. But now to wrap up Calvin's life. Calvin kept preaching and teaching until he could physically do so no longer. On February 6th, 1564, Calvin preached his last Sunday sermon. He was so weak that he had to be carried to the pulpit on his bed. That was his last sermon. But Calvin, ready to meet his God, died of illness a few months later on May 27, 1564. According to his wishes, Calvin was buried in a common wooden casket in an unmarked grave so that there would be no posthumous hero worship. He was buried in the Cemetery des Plaines Palais in Geneva. In the 19th century, despite Calvin's wishes, a stone was added to the cemetery at the spot where Calvin is thought to be buried. And if you look Calvin up on Wikipedia, you can see that stone. But that site is actually uncertain. We don't know if Calvin is actually buried under there. So again, in irony to the present in which Calvinism is a well-known term, Calvin preferred that his name would fade into the background. He wanted an unmarked grave. He didn't want people to worship him as a hero. No, you're not sinning if you use the term Calvinism or Calvinist. But Calvin would want you to be thinking about the truth that goes beyond his own theology or ministry. In this way, Calvin reminds us that he really was just, just another proclaimer of the divine word, just as you and I are. He was just a man. Like all the reformers, Calvin wanted the eyes away from himself and toward the glorious and worthy Lord Jesus. May we maintain the same emphasis in our own lives as we seek to give the treasure of the scriptures to others, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of God himself. That's it for Calvin. Questions or comments on Calvin's life and ministry? We have a few minutes. Any questions or comments? Why do they believe there are only two sacraments? Well, if we uh, to answer your question, why do they believe? Why did the most of the reformers believe there are only two sacraments, and what standards do they apply? Well, if we go back to Luther, and I think there's a similar approach to uh, Zwingli and Calvin. They're they're sol they're holding to sola scriptura. They're going, to, going back to the scriptures and they're saying, what sacraments actually come from the Bible? And as they did this, as Luther did this specifically, he said, all right, these other sacraments aren't bad. But they're just not scriptural. The only sacraments that are given in the Bible are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, Luther also highlighted that these were clear gospel symbols. The gospel is very evident in these two rituals. And so, therefore, they're the only rituals that we're going to be doing in the church. And I understand that there are some today who, who believe that feet washing is another sacrament, but um, the, the reformers didn't see that. But yeah, it ultimately comes back to the scripture. Yeah, Danny. Good question. Did Calvin believe in a replacement theology where the church replaces Israel? I am a little hesitant to say that he did because I, I can't quite remember though that would be consistent with the hermeneutic that I described to you. He didn't believe that there would be a literal kingdom for Israel. He was an amillennialist. So there is a chance, perhaps a good chance, that he was a replacement theologian, though I am not sure. I'd have to double check. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, okay, thanks, Bill. Um, just to repeat your comment. Early in his institutes, apparently, he does say that the church replaces Israel, but later in his, in his institutes, he says that they, the church does not. So, it, as you say, it appears to be an issue that he himself was kind of struggling with. Rob. 
That's great. Let me repeat that um, just for the recording. But a good quote from Calvin, even when he was old and uh, sick, people telling him he should stop laboring so much in his study. But he said, no, I can't do that unless the Lord find me idle when he returns. Well, that's it for today. What we know, um, based on the lessons today, that Calvin and his church and his schools, they helped train ministers. They brought the gospel to other parts of Europe, like the Netherlands, like France, but also England and Scotland. And that Reformation theology is going to grab hold there. That's what I want to talk to you about next week. Next week, we look at how Reformation unfolded in England and in Scotland. And it's going to be a little different than in other places in Europe. Let's close in prayer. My God, we thank you for men like John Calvin, these reformers who went before us, their successors, their associates, their their supporters. God, we have inherited a great treasure from them, a love for scriptures, a, a confidence in the scriptures. That's ultimately what all these, um, all this history points us back to God, not to great traditions, but to your word. Your word is truth. It is great. It is our foundation. God, help us to understand your word. Help us to keep seeking it. Help us to share it. God, we thank you that you are sovereign in salvation because there's no way we could come to you unless you did it all. But God, that's also an encouragement to our evangelism. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be... um, Anxious because you go before, just like you went before the people of Israel um, into the promised land and preparing the conquest for them. So you do even in evangelism. You prepare the hearts. You're the one who changes somebody so that as we use the means that you've ordained your word, our work is not in vain. So use this, God, as your witnesses. Help us to be obedient to you in this way. Place people in our paths. Help us to be proactive in starting conversations that, that um, could lead to spiritual things so that people might believe, might come to know you and be saved. pray that you would continue to edify Calvary today with the preaching, the pastor, and through the worship that they have together. In Jesus' name, amen.